Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. Today's show is both a sponsor insight and another empty room, an exciting investment opportunity where few are paying attention. This time, it's CLO Equity, an asset that has consistently generated strong returns with modest risk for decades. And that fact may come as a surprise to many. My guest is Thomas Majewski, the managing partner and founder of Eagle Point Credit Management, a $14 billion specialist credit manager that's believed to be one of the largest investors in CLO equity in the world. Thomas spent his entire career in the structured finance and credit markets, including the early days when he likely was the first person to refinance a CLO. Our conversation offers a masterclass on CLOs across Tom's career history, the mechanics of CLOs, and nuances of the business. We discuss his early years in the business, characteristics and performance history of the asset, and the launch of Eagle Point in the aftermath of the financial crisis. We discuss Eagle Point's strategy, investment process, team, desired traits of successful CLO collateral managers, opportunities in CLO debt, and Tom's vision for the business going forward. Please enjoy my conversation with Tom Majewski. Tom, great to see you. Great. Thanks for having me here, Ted. Well, why don't we start with your background in this world of structured credit? Well, it was a, not a straight line for sure. Things started accidentally. I, I studied accounting in, in State College in upstate New York at Binghamton and turned up at one of the then big six accounting firms. 
no longer with us, unfortunately. And uh, after some training, they went around the room the first day and said, you're going to Solomon, you're going to XYZ, you're going to this client, this client. And they skipped over me. And I was a little <laughs> nervous. And they said, oh, come with us. Uh-oh, uh, everything was fine. May I ask where we're going? Oh, you're very interested in securitization. We'd like to have you join our securitization group. Okay, now I didn't fully remember what securitization was, but they had sent a form, a copy that you filled out and mailed back in. And one of the boxes I apparently ticked was securitization, and I, I guess I was the only one who checked it in the starting class that year. <laughs> so they moved me to this group. Thankfully, I could model a loan or amortize a mortgage in Lotus 123. And that gave me an immediate edge over many other people in this group who were still grappling with principal and interest and all the silly calculations you have to do. But from just stumbling in to this, literally by ticking a box I didn't fully appreciate, I got into something I knew how to do. And that was really enjoyable. As an accountant, usually your client is the controller or the CFO at a whatever firm you might be working with. And if you get a job with one of your clients, which is a pretty common thing at accounting firms, you're going to be working as the deputy controller or something like that. We were very fortunate. Our clients were the investment bankers and the front office investment bankers. So whereas JP Morgan turned me down for a back office job out of college, I was invited to join them in a front office role as a vice president. And I was brought in to help unwind a program of market value CLOs that the bank had created in the 1990s. And I had been involved in modeling CLOs when I was an accountant. And one of the things that always intrigued me about them, unlike most other forms of securitization, the assets vary over time. If you invest in a mortgage pool or an auto securitization, you start with 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 loans, whatever it may be, and, and that's what you get, and you hope they all work out, and if they don't, the investors bear the consequence. Within a CLO, the portfolios continuously change, and that was different than everything else, and it started to pique my attention, and when the opportunity came to join a bank to actually deal with a problem in the asset class, I jumped at the opportunity. What was this problem with the market value CLOs that you were asked to step into? The marks on the loans were going down. Simple as that. <laughs> and at, at some point in those days, the bank kept the top 75% of the CLO on their balance sheet and sold away the bottom 20 to 25% to third parties. Now, those CLOs had traditional or what you would call a margin style trigger that if the price of loans fell below a certain amount, the senior investor, the bank in this case, had a lot of additional rights, including liquidating the portfolio. Now, at the time, the bank had over $10 billion of exposure to these investments. The bank's market cap was only around $30 billion at the lows in 2002, so it was a non-trivial amount. And my task was to get the bank out of its senior exposure while not getting complaints to the chairman. Many of the bottom clients in the residual tranches were some of the biggest insurance companies in the world and very important clients of the bank. And we were successful. We didn't take a loss and we didn't get a complaint. So that was very good. But a lot of our proposal to the residual investors was, well, let's just get rid of these market value triggers. There's also something called cash flow CLOs, where if we take your portfolio, we'll roll your equity in the portfolio into this new vehicle. We'll pay off the old debt, us, we were kind of happy with that, and we can sell new debt into the market with cash flow triggers. And thereafter, I promise you, you'll never hear about the price of loans being a factor again. Some people didn't like it. Of 
course, some investors liquidated on the lowest days, as some investors invariably do, and others saw the opportunity and said, wow, if we can take this off the table, bank loans, uh, syndicated loans, large cap loans to big American companies is a very attractive asset. And if I can get stable financing without having to worry about marks, I think this will work quite well. And from there, I was asked to take over the new issue business where we were creating new CLOs. Needless to say, these were all cash flow CLOs that we were creating, and I've never, ever in my career created a market value CLO. This is after Sarbanes-Oxley, but before Dodd-Frank. So if you think of the regulatory landmarks over our our respective careers, as we got into this post-Sarbanes-Oxley world, there were rules about derivatives, transactions, and things like that. One of the things we did back then, this was perhaps the first ever, the CLOs, the equity class has a lot of rights, including the right to collapse a CLO or refinance a CLO or any number of important rights that are more accustomed to being an equity holder, a private equity holder in a private enterprise. CLOs are really just private banks at the end of the day, but the average bond buyer isn't thinking about control rights when they're looking at a bond. They're trading something on the mortgage key on Bloomberg. They're worried about prepayments, maybe defaults, maybe rates, but they're not thinking, what are my rights as a holder? I'm along for the ride is typically the way things are. And what I knew is what these equity classes, if the majority agreed to do something, you could actually liquidate, force a CLO to liquidate or unwind. Now, it's at the equity's option, not the debt holder's option, but the equity, as proper equity rights should be. And we had, as we were winding these down, these old vehicles, someone called up, oh, I hear you can help with CLOs. And this was a 1998 vintage CLO. I remember TCW was the collateral manager and an insurance company not too far up the road here in a little insurance capital of Connecticut called up and said, hey, would you mind buying this equity piece I have in my portfolio? I've just taken over the book. I don't understand it. I think it's a bad time in the credit cycle. And we looked through it, and it took us a little while to figure out how much it was worth. There was not a lot of trading back then, and we figured we could liquidate it for about 50 cents on the dollar. So we showed them a bit of 40, and they accepted. Hmm. Okay, that was interesting. So we, we have something that we think we can get 50 out of that we're getting a significant discount on. So then we went out and tried to buy up other securities in that same CLO to the point where we then had the majority of the equity class, and we exercised the right to call the CLO. That was great. And all of a sudden, we got pulled to par and we made millions of dollars. Of course, that had the adverse effect of ending the fees to that collateral manager. And very few people like to have their fees ended. They called up and maybe used some not so nice words, but said to us, you know, what the heck are you doing? We, I'll save you the hard words. We have a relationship with the bank. How dare you do this? And we just said, well, why don't we do a new deal with those same assets? Oh, that's a great idea. Friend, <laughs> brilliant. Let's go. And a few months later, we were able to print a new CLO for that firm. They lengthened their AUM. They got a higher fee in the new deal. Win, win, win for us. We made a trading profit on the old stuff. We made a big fee on the new deal. So that took months and months to do. Last year, I think our team did 37 of those corporate actions. What took us probably three to six months to get done ages ago. We think that was the first time it happened where someone exercised majority rights in the equity of a CLO. And that's now commonplace today, but it was one of the first times where people really exploited these options that are given to the equity holder, which are not typical in any other form of securitization. What happened with the path from that first collapsing of a CLO and the sort of early existence of that 
over the time from then until when you launched Eagle Point in the CLO market? So this was 2002, 2003. Thankfully, the world was straight up for the next five years. Sadly, good ideas are very hard to keep secret on Wall Street. And very quickly, everyone and their brother figured out the trick. It took everyone a little while, and we had a head start for sure. But all of a sudden, people wanted to buy old equity. And how can I build to control? There were very few majority investors back then. Today, Eagle Point has majority interest in over 100 different CLOs across our firm. But back then, it was very rare. So you'd have to build up these positions. I kept staying and doing more and more and more of this. There were some big reorgs at the bank um, when Bank One came over. We've all been at big banks, and big changes happen from time to time. After a brief stop at Bear Stearns, I ended at Merrill Lynch, and that was a great spot. And we did many of the same things and repeated that same playbook and built out a fairly big CLO business for Merrill. Then, of course, the music stopped, and late 2007, early 2008 came, and structured products in general went the wrong way. What I knew, and I don't think a lot of people appreciated, and many people said, well, loans are garbage, and some of the LBOs from 2006 and seven, like Tribune and TXU, some of the worst hits of that vintage of credit excess, were all in the CLO ecosystem. The CLOs buy all these large cap syndicated loans, and I knew there was trouble in the loan portfolios. There was no doubt about that. But what I also knew was CLOs could keep reinvesting. And there's a couple of things that happen. Every loan that doesn't default pays off at par. It's a binary outcome for every credit instrument. There's only two things that can happen at the end. And even if 5 or 10% default, that means 90 or 95% of them will pay off at par. Now, those par payoffs happen randomly for different reasons. A big investment grade company buys a small below investment grade, takes it in, just pays off the old debt, whatever it may be. Mortgage people talk about prepayments all day long, CPR and things like that. CLO people really talk about default rates, how many loans are going to default. The prepayment rate, in my opinion, is far more important. And even in 2008 and nine, on average, 12% of loans paid off at par each year. Back then, the loan market was in distress, as were all risk assets, and they were trading at 60, 70 cents on the dollar. But if you're a CLO manager, you're getting money back in, 10% of your portfolio, 12% back at par, you can go buy stuff at 70 cents on the dollar. And certainly by 2009, you could re-underwrite the winners from losers pretty clearly. Most of the surprises were known at that point. And what turned out to be the 2006 and 2007 CLOs, the vintage medians from those periods, far outperformed the base case in the pitch books. Not because they had good loans, they probably had some bad loans, but they had the ability to keep reinvesting with locked up capital, not worried about mark-to-market triggers, and were able to thrive, such that the average CLO beat the base case by about 4% per annum on its IRR. Truly remarkable. I'd love to dive in on effectively the unit economics of a CLO. And why don't you walk through the full instrument, both the asset side and the liability side, just to level set this idea that, okay, there's repayments and you can reinvest. Sure. So within a CLO, there's, again, picture a bank in your mind. The only difference is there's no retained earnings and there's no risk of a run on the bank. But the CLO has assets, which are all senior secured loans to American companies. These are large companies you do business with every day at Comcast, Cable, Asurion, who you might have your cell phone insurance with, American Airlines, big blue chip American companies. They're below investment grade, but these are 
large companies you know and do business with every day. They're not smaller middle market companies in general, which have different strengths and weaknesses to them. And we have a diverse portfolio of them, typically 150 or 200 different loans in a given CLO. By definition, you're going to get a couple wrong. No credit picker is going to be able to pick things perfectly, but you have a, a diverse portfolio. No one industry or no one company can bring down a CLO. And for the first typically five years of a CLO, any loan that pays off, any loan that defaults and recovers, whatever you get, or any loan the collateral manager or servicer goes to sell, those monies get reinvested back into additional loans. Now, sometimes it's better to buy new loans with a little bit of OID and everything breaks up and it's a hot market and everything pops on the break. Other times, like today, where the average loan is at about 92 cents on the dollar, you take those par dollars and you go buy things that are on sale. So different, whatever you buy might vary depending on the market, but you've got that closed system. All of that principle just keeps getting reinvested for the first five years. There's going to be some mistakes along the way. No one can pick 150, 200 below investment grade credits and get everyone perfect, but you have a market mechanism typically to reinvest to make up your problems. And what happens with the interest that those loans pay? Sure. So interest in principle comes off. And just like in any securitization, the trustee puts them in two. There's an interest account and a principal account. We're really getting into the nuts and bolts here, but I'm sure you have a few securitization listeners who will love this. The principal, with very limited exception for the first five years, just gets reinvested by the collateral manager back into replacement loans. Could be new loans or secondary loans. There is one exception there's something called an over-collateralization test, and this can impact the principal account or interest account. If on the day of measurement, which is there are four days a year, these are measured quarterly, the other 361 days of the year, the OC tests do not matter. But on these four days, if you're failing your test, which is a ratio of par of assets versus liabilities with some adjustments, if you're failing that test, any principal in the principal account would need to reuse to pay down the AAA class if you're failing the test. Now, a good collateral manager will have $0 in the principal account on the day of determination, and you know that day is coming, and it's very easy to manage your portfolio. If you've left money in there, you're probably asleep at the switch, and probably not someone we're investing with from Eagle Point. Now, interest goes into another account, and again, that's paid out quarterly on the same day we, we did that principal waterfall. And as long as we're passing all of the over-collateralization tests, the AAA gets their interest, which today might be LIBOR plus 250 on a new CLO. The AA gets their interest all the way down to typically a double B class. And then the equity or residual holder gets all of the net investment income after all the expenses. If the lawyers needed something, the rating agencies always have a small fee. And that excess cash flow is typically about 25 to 30% on an annualized basis. It's a bank just without retained earnings. Now, if you think about when banks get in trouble, if you look back in you know, the history of the last 10, 15 years, banks get in trouble for opening branches, opening accounts for in branches that people don't know accounts are being opened, the London Whale or some other derivatives business or some other silly thing that some employees did that they probably should not have done. Very rarely are banks brought down due to their secured corporate loan book. When you think about the history of banking... But that's pretty unusual that the senior secured corporate loan book was the thing that brought the bank to its knees. The loan market has a track record going back about 30 years. The Credit Suisse Leverage Loan Index is sort of the S&P 500 of the loan market. And it's had a positive return for 28 of the last 30 years. Truly remarkable. These are below investment grade assets. These are risk assets. 
Yet, because they're floating rate, you don't have a really much rate risk, and they're senior and secured so that when things do go awry and below investment grade companies do have problems, at least you're first in line. Loans are weaker today probably than they've been in the past, but you're still first. And you'd always rather be first than not first when things are bad. So you put that formula together, you have an asset class that's delivered positive returns over 90% of the years in the last three decades. You put that in a CLO structure and in a bank, once you get past the things that can go bad with the business side of things, and a lot of commercial banks have 30% of their assets and loans, 70% is everything else. A CLO just has 100% of its assets and secured loans to American companies. The right side of a balance sheet, if you were to look at any major money center bank, they'll have 60 to 70% of their liabilities due in a year or less. This is your and my checking account, a savings account, other overnight CP they might use. Admittedly, they have the Fed window, and I think that probably makes some people behave differently in the future, but the number of banks that suffered the run on the bank, even as recently as 2008, is significant. A CLO has no financing that's due prior to its last loan maturing. So we can see every loan through, if we want, to its ultimate maturity date. And again, every loan will default or pay off at par. It's a binary outcome. And I have financing in place that's longer than my longest asset. So I can see everything through if I need to and not worry about marks. Now, no bank has ever figured out how to do that, how to borrow on a long-term basis and lend at a short term, but also lend at a high rate and borrow at a low rate. And we figured that out in the CLO market. The other way you hear banks getting into trouble, and it is probably part of that other 70%, is just leverage, the sense of leverage. You mentioned getting that long-dated financing on the right side of the balance sheet of a CLO. How does leverage work both in getting that broad financing and then the tranching of the liabilities for the CLO manager? There's a couple of pros and cons with leverage. If things go well, it enhances your returns. If you buy a stock on margin and it doubles, you know, you've Made four times your money if you did it that way. Obviously, if it goes down, your broker's going to call you up and either have you send in money or liquidate your position if you're not happy. Leverage, the risk is it can make you do something you don't want to do on the day you don't want to or the day you don't have the ability to if you're out of money. Our leverage doesn't have that feature. It certainly amplifies the returns up and down, but it doesn't ever force us to put in money or sell assets on a bad day. So you have to understand the terms of leverage to evaluate the risk of leverage. In the case of using short-term repo financing or overnight repurchase agreements or margin financing, you're subject to the whims of the lender on almost on a daily basis. And when things go down, lenders make phone calls. They're not the most happy calls to receive or make, but that's what happens. We don't have that in the CLO market. So when you look at the leverage, you have to understand the terms. So that's very good. And then what's the A versus the B? What's the C? How does that come to be? That's an art with the rating agencies and each of the big rating agencies use different methodologies. They come out with similar results, but not the exact same result. And you can kind of look through a loan portfolio and line it up to what fits best within which rating agency construct, which will get you the most amount that's AAA, the most amount that's AA, so on and so forth. And then those securities, the AAA and AA and so on down the line, are sold to different types of investors. The AAAs are commonly bought by banks and insurance companies. There's never been an impairment in the history of the CLO market on a AAA or AA security issued. Not saying it can't ever happen, but the severity of credit loss that would need to occur 
is such that there'd be far greater issues that could break these things. They typically have 35% credit enhancement to the AAA level. And if you think about companies recovering 50 cents on the dollar, you'd need 70% of corporate America to default. Stranger things have happened, I guess, but it's so far it hasn't. And I think with good reason that the banks are pretty darn comfortable and they'd have to default at once as well to have that really be an issue. So banks buy it in the United States, some Japanese banks, some European banks buy insurance companies like a lot of the middle part of the capital structure, and then more hedge funds down to the triple B and double B area. And different investors have different appetites, some like new, some like used, and there's different pros and cons of each. There's a rich and robust market. If there's probably 750 to 800 billion of CLOs outstanding in the United States right now, there are in the debt classes, hundreds of investors all around the world who are interested in different of those at different times. So I want to circle back to this idea that you really haven't had impairment with these portfolios. And take me back to how that played out through the financial crisis. And then what did you do as a result? Sure. And I was working um, with some Australian investors at the time, their superannuation program there, which is for Americans, we would call it mandatory 401k. I think it's up to 12% of all salaries are mandatorily put into the self-directed plans. What a great idea. We should have that here. But what that means as a money manager is just by law, money's coming into your accounts every single month. So we had a lot of CLO equity in the, and it was a group I had sold a lot of securities to when I joined them and, and had worked with them. And frankly, what we saw were some of the best opportunities then were to buy more CLOs. Now the marks were way down. That stinks. That's no one likes when your portfolio is marked down. It was interesting. We had one company where we were an investor in the private equity fund and they had the equity of that company marked at par Yet our CLO was a lender to that same company and the debt was marked at 50. I could see the look through. (laughs) And I said, well, one of these marks is wrong. The debt is worth 50. It's hard to see the equity worth original cost and these nuances, but these things sort themselves out over time. Some investors can disguise marks for a period of time, but the opportunity to buy CLO equity cheap on the secondary, often from people who looked at it and said, I don't know what this is, or the prior person bought it. Those were some of the things that proved to be the best investments you could have made. And owning those securities through the darkest days rounded out my experience. I was originally fixed old broken things, saw what you shouldn't do, created new for a while, and then owned stuff in many cases that I had cooked in really hard times and saw how it behaved as an owner. And put all of that experience together led to the ideal timing for formation of Eagle Point. So stereotypically, when those opportunities are the best, and you can imagine, right, we're in the depths in early 09 and through, you know, things are starting to recover, that's typically when it's next to impossible to raise capital. So great idea to invest in this asset class. How did you go about forming a business at that time? Well, it took a year or two extra. There's no real disadvantage to be a majority investor in a CLO except that you need a lot of capital so you can have a diverse portfolio of majority positions. And as I mentioned earlier, we have, I literally saw the report yesterday, we now have 101 majority positions across CLOs. But let's say you could convince someone you've got this great idea and you're the best guy to do it. The average new fund seeder, probably $50 million, $25 million, we'll leave the money with you for a little while and see how it goes. That was not sufficient to 
demonstrate the point that I believed we could make and we have subsequently made of that an investor enabled with scale of capital and a deep understanding of the inefficiencies of the CLO market could persistently outperform the market. Part of the way to do that is being very visible to the market that you've got that scale of capital right out of the gates. And we've been blessed our scale of capital across all our vehicles has grown. But I was kind of beyond the scope of what a typical fund seeder would be. So I really needed to find my way into private equity to find that kind of money. We were looking for a quarter billion dollars. Now, if you talk to most private equity firms, very rarely do they like to get involved with new companies. And very rarely do they like to put their funds money in securities. For whatever reason, right or wrong, I think that's a reality of that world. What they will do is pay a 12 times multiple on next year's pro forma doubly adjusted EBITDA and things like that, <laughs> rather than just put their money in some hard assets that'll deliver hopefully a double digit return. So as I was scouring for a private equity sponsor to build our business, not a seeder, but a sponsor, I came across the folks at Stone Point Capital through a mutual introduction. And I had a full-baked business plan that looks remarkably like Eagle Point. Our first name was Bank Road Capital Management, but one reason or another, I think that name was taken. Naming a firm is one of the most challenging parts of establishing a firm. When we, I met with the team, they had said they were looking to create a business and they wanted to sponsor a business that would be involved in investing in CLO securities. And I said, well, I'm looking for a sponsor to help back me to create a business to invest in CLO securities. And as we got to know each other, it literally was from that first meeting to the day we hung our shingle was one year to the day. That was 10 years ago. We got to know the team. And what was very unique about the team at Stone Point, and they're a large, well-regarded private equity firm with billions and billions of dollars of capital under management, they had backed 29 other new businesses. 28 of them had thrived. When I looked at that, I said, these folks have an extraordinary track record of getting involved with creating new businesses. And from their perspective, and we management had to chip in, you know, they made us chip in, not more than we'd like, but uh, you, know, you had to wince a little bit, but that's the right answer. That's absolutely the right answer. Success was the only option, and they're very good at finding that threshold. But the amount of working capital we had to put in our business was a few million dollars. By the time we got up and running and everything, we had some outside money and the capital was generating fees for us. Rather than pay $100 million or $500 million for a business, we put a few million dollars in in soft costs and we bought securities. Now, the securities might have done bad or good. Obviously, they did very well. We're fortunate. But the reality is the risk of loss was pretty darn low. And the asymmetry of return on the upside, we thought, had the potential to be tremendous. They've been extraordinary partners over the last decade. And we set this up on a two-page term sheet. I remember I was in Singapore at the Marina Bay Sands Hotel on a road show, and we shook hands on a two-page term sheet, and I've never looked at it since. And I don't believe they have either. And that's the highest compliment I can pay them. So having seen this whole market from, it's really inception in a lot of ways, how did you decide what strategy you wanted to pursue? That was the easiest decision of all, actually. A majority CLO equity strategy is our principal business. We do some other things in CLO debt, but the CLO equity market to me is a grossly misunderstood market. People associate it with CDOs. People think it's the next harbinger of doom in many cases. The reality is 96% of all the cash flow CLOs created prior to the financial crisis 
had a positive return to the equity class, and the median IRR was 15%. So using the dartboard school of security selection, you really had a struggle to lose money if you could hold the securities through the cycle. If you sold at the bottom, you sold stocks at the bottom, you've lost all your money. If you sold anything at the bottom, you're going to lose your money. The CLO asset class worked with very limited exception. If you stay with it the whole time, it was very unusual to lose money. Now, but the dispersion of outcomes was great. From the 25th percentile to the 75th percentile, about 7% or 700 basis points difference in performance, just in that middle 50%, when you look up and down, the tail's even 10% wide of that on either side. So it was an asset class that worked. It was misunderstood. There's a ton of inefficiencies in the creation process and in the secondary trading process, which our systems and processes are designed to capture. CLOs are not reported on trace, for example. So it's a little more of an opaque market where you need to be in the club to be able to really outperform. And we are, and we are in spades. So it was an inefficient market, scale. People were afraid of it because of the name of the damn thing. Forget about the actual merits without looking at the data and something where insiders we think could persistently outperform. So that all came together perfectly. I believe that $250 million was at the time the largest single commitment ever made to CLO equity. So that was a pretty gutsy move on their part as well, and they've been well rewarded for it. But those attributes don't exist in too many markets. Once you overlay the inefficiency and dispersion of outcomes that we're able to influence significantly from here. So what we began as a, I mean, we'll get start, let's get the 250 to work and hopefully we'll grow. Now we have billions and billions of dollars of CLOs that of just the equity that we control, which we extrapolate out to tens of billions of dollars of loans. I'd love to walk through some aspects of that investment process as you're seeking to get at the high end of that 700 basis points of dispersion. So why don't we just start with the sourcing? So I'm going to use some words that sound a lot like a private equity process versus a bond process here. Now, then we buy fixed income securities. They're traded on the fixed income desk. They're on the mortgage key on Bloomberg. We have a proactive outbound origination process. This is when we're creating new CLOs. I'll talk about when we're buying secondary CLOs shortly. Proactive outbound origination process. There are about 120 active collateral managers in the market. We have firsthand personal relationships with all of them. And just like at a bank, there's executives that make all the decisions and go home every night. Their CLOs have collateral managers that make the decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, and they go home every night. And one of the things was actually on that road show in Singapore when I was signing an agreement to set up Eagle Point, I was with a collateral manager. And obviously, that's the longest flight in the world getting to Singapore. I might have lovely food on Singapore Airlines. I was going to have a glass of wine and go to sleep because we have meetings, of course, when we land. My travel companion, who was a CLO manager, I was a banker at the time, he was my client, he's reading credit memos the whole darn way. <laughs> okay, have a good night. Just so you know, the first meeting's at nine o'clock, be ready. We land at six, we'll shower and get right to the first meeting. And you watch how someone behaves like that. And I wanted to be well-rested because I wanted to be sharp for the first meeting. This individual wanted to study the credit memos because he was going to do a credit committee from 7.30 to 8.30 when we landed. And while it might not be the most fun person to travel with, it's a great person to invest with. And we see that kind of behavior, and we know these people over 20 to 25 years. Most CLO managers trace their roots back to Manufacturers Hanover Trust, 
That's where the loan market began under Peter Gleistein and Jimmy Lee many, many years ago. And there's some strengths and weaknesses from that. But broadly, that loan group, you could probably go back to the 1988 analyst class at Manny Haney or something like that, and you can trace most of those people run CLOs today. Our job, just like any private equity sponsor, is to know the management teams in our industry. If you invest in fintech, you'd better know all the appropriate management teams and know who's doing well, who's on the up and coming, who's maybe it's not working. We know that in the CLO markets. We know our issuer teams very well. One of the things that irks me about them, these folks were credit trained for nine months. I'm sure it was a you know, brutal class. And if you probably didn't get a good grade, you got fired. I think credit training is like a webinar they do on their phones on the weekend now at a bank. So it's, <laughs> it's a little shorter than that. But in the old days, it was proper credit training. Many CLO managers work for the debt in the CLOs. Think about it. And, and you'll say they're credit trained. They're, this is their DNA. And some will even go so far as to say, well, the debt does put up 90% of the money, so I'd better make sure to take care of them. No private equity sponsor would ever invest with a management team who says, I'm going to work for my creditors. That's laughable. It's unthinkable. The meeting would just end and that would be that. And while we respect our creditors, you don't ever take advantage of them because they won't lend to you again. There's a balance. We'll pay them back at our convenience within the terms of the documents. And it's very interesting. Only about 20% of CLO collateral managers really share that DNA of appreciating they're trying to deliver returns for the equity. And it's uncanny the number of times people say, oh, well, the debt is so important. And it's important. But you always work for the owners in any enterprise. So that's some of the stuff we try and filter out of getting to the CLO collateral managers who have the DNA to deliver consistent outperformance to the equity. It's nothing to do with a high-risk portfolio or a low-risk portfolio. We have CLO portfolios of all different flavors. There's no correlation, in my opinion, to the returns to the equity based on the quality of the portfolio. It's all about the quality of the collateral manager. When you're assessing those collateral managers to get at the 20% that you feel like get it right, is that a data-driven assessment or is it knowing the people? Ted, it's all of the above. It starts by knowing the people. And once in a while, probably once a year, we have a team come in, we don't know any of the people. And between both my senior partners and I, if we don't know any of the people... We're probably not going to invest, but we'll take a look. It's free to look. And, you know, you never know. Maybe there's a diamond in the rough. But having the advantage of having worked with the folks for so long, you see firsthand that person on the plane could have been easily on their third movie and, you know, getting some sleep. You get the DNA of the people and understanding that who's checked out, who's bought a new boat, who's got the new place in the vineyard they're going to. It's finding that group that has the DNA and that's only from personal interactions and then overlay a quantitative analysis. They could be hard worker, but results pay the bills, not effort. We have tremendous amount of data. We own a software company called Valatana, which started out as our internal analytics, and it has the data now on every CLO in the market. So even if I'm not an investor in CLO X, on my iPhone even, I can see the portfolio and all the trades last month in that CLO, even if I'm not a party to the CLO. So the richness of the data, there's no more transparent pooled investment vehicle than a CLO. Imagine you could call Fidelity and say, let me see the blotter on Magellan for last month. No, they'll give you a schedule of investments by as required by law, but you don't get the trades. We actually get the trades. So we can see what's going on in every single CLO 
in the market. And then we can translate that to how much equity distributions are getting paid, and we can heat map any single collateral manager by any reasonable metric. How much COVID exposure do they have? How much metals in mining? How much portfolio turnover? How much are they pushing sell versus just getting pay downs? Things like that. Every CLO collateral manager is above average. It's a total <laughs> statistical anomaly. Every one of them is better than average by some metric. And one of the things we have to do, we, the one we care about is equity returns. That's all these other metrics are interesting. If you're delivering consistent high cash flows to the equity and not eroding your portfolio, those are the folks we're going to gravitate to. And it, it's ultimately blindingly obvious that some of our, our largest collateral manager relationships, we've been investing with them consistently since 2012 or 13. In most cases, we're their largest single investor, which it's always important for both sides of the relationship, but they deliver consistent returns for us. And that's what we like. So once we've shaken hands with them on some economics and we figure out the terms and the basic things between us and the management team, we then call investment banks, Morgan Stanley or Citibank or JP Morgan, and we'll negotiate with them as to what their placement fees would be. The way a CLO typically comes together is the banker and the collateral manager get together and then go shop the deal to investors, kind of an auction process. We turn that competitive process around and have the banks compete. But we also say to the bank, if you can sell the equity at a much higher price than our discounted level, you can buy some back from us and go sell. We want you to make a profit, just not too much from us. And partnerships last when everyone gets rich together and we're mindful of that. We want to use our scale of capital to help us make a lot of money, our investors, and the people we do business with enable them to do more business in aggregate. We might like some preferential economics along the way. So what we change that competitive process around, we put the banks in competition with each other instead of us being in competition with other investors. Then from there, we lead the execution process. We have a full-time structuring person. We have another person on our team whose principal job is to read every CLO indenture in the market. In theory, the worst job on Wall Street. In fact, he's the second most fun guy at our company. He does a <laughs> tremendous job. He can light up any room, but he also knows provision 8.2 and a CLO from 2017 that we're not involved in. He'll know what that provision happens to be. And his ability to, to draft the documents and negotiate with the investors, because then the investors who are buying the debt tranches have a bunch of comments on the documents. And then we steward the transactions. We're not buying and selling the loans. The collateral managers are doing that. We've diligenced the heck out of them. But what we do is we continue to talk to them regularly. And I think anyone we invest with would say, oh, those guys at Eagle Point call us regularly. With our largest CLO collateral managers, we have open Bloomberg chats with them live every single day talking about we're partners. We want them to succeed. They want us to do well. It's a symbiotic relationship. And we want to make sure they're focused on our portfolios. So in that primary issue market, once you've done all of this work, you've built these relationships, how much turnover do you have over time in, let's call it your roster of collateral managers? One to two a year. It has basically been the, the once, we, once we ramped up, so we started in 2012. By 2015, we had a bit of a mature portfolio. It's one or two a year. And sometimes it's just a pause. One firm was our largest exposure at a point. They bought another small firm. It was probably, it was less than 10% of their AUM, but just the pain and suffering of any merger, doesn't matter how big it is, is a challenge. 
maybe they got a little distracted and it was maybe during a difficult time in the credit market. We kind of backed off for a while. Then they got sold to an even bigger company. It wasn't a no integration, just that business changed business cards, a little easier. But we let some time pass. They righted the ship and we're back in business with them. So there are situations like that that have happened. There are some that if the senior person retires, you have to make a decision on the next person. How are they going to take over and do things well? Other examples, the number two PM at one of our largest CLO collateral managers got hired to be the number one at a different big firm. And we hadn't done business with that firm in a while, but we knew that she was going to light it up, did very well for us in the past. The old firm had a deep enough bench. We weren't worried. The new firm, big, big private equity firm, on her first day on the job, we said, well, why don't we do a, two new CLOs for a billion dollars in total? That's a good call to get on your first day. <laughs> now, it was at our maybe at our rate card, but that's a good way to start on your first day on the job. Hey, the largest investor in the market wants to start us with a billion, and they've never really done business with us in the past. So that's a win-win-win, and, and we're very friendly. She said, you'll never get that deal again. But you know, you'll always get the best. And that's the way to do business where we knew it was a quality firm, but maybe they just needed a fresh leader at the head of that business and we knew this person was perfect for it. So it's those are the kind of organic things that happen. CLOs are living, breathing things. Management teams are living, breathing things, just like any private equity firm or hedge fund firm. You have to monitor those changes and, and make sure what you signed up for is what you keep getting. How does the sourcing of transactions work in the secondary market? So here it's equally murky, but different. CLOs trade secondary two different ways. So one is called a BWIC or bid wanted in comp process. And if I look at my phone, there'll be 15 BWICs today, do it various times, usually at some CLO debt and some CLO equity. There may even be one or two majority pieces out for bid today. If you're a deep insider, you probably know who the seller is, but it's not published who the seller is. Or you might know, oh, that person bought that bond originally, so it's probably them selling it or whatever it may be. Not that it particularly matters, but some sellers are simply doing a pricing exercise, particularly around month end. So everyone on the street does a ton of work, puts in all these bids, eh, does not trade. So the amount of hours, you know, you know, our analysts will spend a few hours, but the analysts at the firm up the street and the next firm up the street have also spent hours and hours and hours. So it can be a woefully inefficient process. And one of the things we try and understand is, is this a real seller, first off? And do they have realistic expectations? Everyone's a seller at a certain price. Is this a realistic seller? If we're going to spend our time and effort on it, let's figure this out. Then you put in a bid, like a BWIC might be due at 10 o'clock. Bids have to be good for three hours. What do you think happens in those three hours? Wouldn't it just simply be sort by price? And at 10.02, you'd know who the winner is. Not so simple. People don't usually put in the bid to 11.30 or 12 on a 10 p.m., 10 a.m. list. And then there's a go shop period and they'll call you back. Well, you're amongst the top. If you want to improve, let us know. And it's just an arduous and drawn out process. So that's one side, but it's inefficient. It's woefully inefficient, frankly, in the amount of time and effort spent versus the amount of securities that actually trade hands, the ratio is way off. Then there's things that are sold privately. This gets more interesting, where someone owns a position, maybe they have a fund that's winding down, they have some liquidity needs at the end of the quarter, 
maybe you know, there were some articles in the press about some UK pensions that their all their gilts moved around and they had to sell other things to free up to meet margin calls. Wanted to sell, but probably didn't want to blast to the whole world if a seller sends a list to 30 dealers. While the customers, the end buyers, the people who could bid on the list don't know who it is. If 30 dealers know, Wall Street's a little bit leaky. That's going to get out. So they might call just one dealer, whoever they have the best relationship with, whatever it may be. Hey, I'm looking to move these three bonds. I'd like to get it done today. Go to two or three accounts who you know can act. And we want to be the first call on those things. And it's keeping warm relationships with the dealers. It's maintaining confidentiality. We don't say to anyone, we saw this bond. And we certainly don't say where we saw it from. Those people are usually much more likely to act. So we want to be the first call. I can't say we are every time, but I think we are a lot of the time. And we're able to act quickly, decisively. We know every CLO collateral manager. Whereas on a new issue basis, we're going to be extremely selective. When you're buying used, with limited exception, there's no bad bonds, just bad prices now. And if someone's a little less good at managing a CLO, we'll just back up our bid five points. And maybe that offsets it. So we're a little more flexible. In the depths of 2020, we were buying majority positions at 20, 25 cents on the dollar. Maybe not with our favorite collateral managers, but again, at 20 cents on the dollar, you do have to be a little more flexible on these things. Everything we didn't buy in that period was a mistake and with the benefit of hindsight, but we remain reasonably selective. But it's again, it's an inefficient off-screen market. If you're a new to the market participant, people will find that out and you won't be happy in three months and then you'll learn your lessons typically. So when we see folks who are sometimes thinking about investing in funds or maybe going direct, they should just think very carefully and make sure they're appropriately resourced. That's probably the biggest thing. It's not a market for transients. So on that resource side, when you're on the other side of a call and it sounds like sometimes there's a relatively rapid turn for a bid, what do the analytics look like that are required for you to dive into a CLO and understand at the end of that what you'd want to bid? To put a dollar price on it. Then we have a, a million inputs that has to equal one number. How do we translate that? So again, our systems, we can just punch up and we start with a big suite of standard scenarios that we're going to run on a different portfolio stresses. Some very punitive ones. Looks like I got some upside scenarios. See, and we want to focus in on those that have the least downside and those that have the most upside. Our traders, when they're looking at equity, will run hundreds of scenarios. The system does it almost instantly. And it ultimately comes down to, I know our traders, when we talk about things, we're looking at six or seven different scenarios. Here's some bad things. Here's some good things. And when we're looking at bad, we're saying, well, okay, well, let's see what kind of losses could happen, but also what's the reinvestment option worth on that day? And what's the price the collateral manager is reinvesting in? And so we might run, let's say, 5% defaults for the next three years and then normalize thereafter. That's probably a stress case. It's certainly, in our view, we don't see 15% of corporate America defaulting over the next three years, but maybe. But then what's the price of loans on that day? It's probably not 92. It's going to be a fair bit lower. And let's look at the sensitivity of those loan prices. You look at a handful of those scenarios and let's say everything works out really quickly and the Fed pivots quickly and rates start coming down and defaults stay very low. But what do you know? Loans are going to start repricing then. If the market takes off again, 
all these high spread deals that have just been issued in the loan market, people are going to try and squeeze those down. So maybe your spread's going to compress. And it's kind of looking at the balance between the two of those. Oddly, the higher default, lower reinvestment price scenarios are typically the best. But that goes back to my data about 2006 and seven being the best vintages. So we'll study all of that. We'll think about the collateral manager, different collateral manager shelves trade at different prices. Someone like a Blackstone is going to be a very keenly bid firm. There's tier two and tier three, which we won't put names to those, but they're going to trade wider in general. And ultimately, it's an art that comes down to judging. You mentioned at the onset the power of having rights as the equity holder in the early years collapsing that first CLO. What are the different ways that you exercise those rights? Sure. Every position in our portfolio, once we get past a short non-call period at the beginning of a CLO, we can do nothing. We can sell the security in the market. Those are always available to us at any time. We could force a liquidation of the CLO, tell the collateral manager game over, sell the loans, pay off the debt, we'll keep the residual. We could refinance a CLO, and this is where we keep everything the same except go out and lower the debt spreads. So triple A's were at 200, now they're at 150. Just call up the old guy, sorry, we'll give you 150 on the wire. If not, we're going to market. Most of the time they just say go to market, call PIMCO if they're answering the phone or wherever else you might go. Or we can reset a CLO, and this involves reopening the entire portfolio, the, all the documents, and recasting the tenor of the CLO, adding a new five-year reinvestment period, new rules, and whatever the most latest provisions are in the market. Those are the basic things we can do. So we have those five options available to us, the first two at any time, and then the last three after that non-call period in addition. We've, in our history, taken well over 100 corporate actions here across our portfolio. Owning a CLO, buying it is just the beginning. Managing it and making sure the collateral manager is focused on it. The more you talk to portfolio managers about your CLOs, you're going to get more portfolio mindshare. And one of the dilemmas that comes up, like when CLOs are getting reset, this is where you reopen the documents and come up with a new five-year tenor. A CLO collateral manager can only be doing a reset or a new issue at the same time. They can't do both. And every money manager in the world comes in on January 1 and has a chart that goes up and to the right. This is, we need to grow AUM <laughs> by this much. We're guilty of it. Everyone has that same chart. We could debate the slope, but we know the direction. So if we're doing a reset, that's taking away their shelf space to do new. And we want to do a reset, but probably the deal before us and the deal after us also wants to do a reset. So there's a tension both with the collateral manager's growth objectives and across different investors. And in 2021, when it was Reset Palooza, and we did 37 corporate actions last year, one collateral manager said, I'm going to do this very fairly. I'm going to go in order. So the first deal can go first, and the second deal, we thought about it. I don't know. Why don't you sort by AUM? And who's your biggest investor? <laughs> and maybe that person should go first. And of course, we recognize these people have multiple clients, and we can't get everything we want. But the list was reworked in our favor, shall we say. And, and that's you take care of your biggest customer. The only business that doesn't take care of their biggest customers are airlines who charge their you know, last minute customers the highest fare. Most businesses, you take care of your, your biggest and most important customers. But we're mindful these folks have businesses and we want them to succeed in aggregate, but we're supposed to win all ties. Across these activities in this market, we've talked about sourcing through relationships, deep data analysis, 
trading components, restructuring terms. It just sounds like there's a lot of different specialties. I'd love to hear the team you have in place that's required to make this work. Yes. A couple things about our team. We have a large investment team wrapped with all the right support and services. Of the things I'm most proud of in our decade at Eagle Point, I've never had a direct report to me ever leave the firm. And we have 99% client retention. You put all that together and that's the right framework, that's the right culture to start with. And how do you create and maintain that culture is getting the right people in the right seats who can do their job, do it well, and either advance or in many cases their job changes as the market changes. And so we have a full-time head of CLO, new issue and new issue everything and equity trading. We have two full-time secondary debt traders who report to that individual. We have a full-time walking document person who's a super individual and one of the most important people on our team. We have a full-time structurer, analyst who supports them all. Me, one, one of our other senior partners, jointly making all the major investment decisions. Separately, we have a credit committee for our CLO business, which I'm a part of. They're separate RIAs, but I'm dual-hatted, so I, I can see both sides of the equation. We have our own approved list for loans. Every CLO has loans we don't like, but we're, we're able to filter through the portfolios through names that we know and like and dislike and whatnot when making investment decisions. And when we stress CLOs, that's one of the things we can factor in. But we have people in the seats who do the thing they're best at. We have a number of people here named Dan, but Dan, the person who's in our documentation-focused person, last year was all about refinancings and resets. Today, it's about quick analysis in the secondary market. Next year, it'll probably be about new issue CLO process and the things that we're trying to bake into documents. So his job really changes every six to 12 months based on the market conditions. I look at our chief compliance officer. She's been here probably since 2014, started as deputy CCO, been promoted up to CCO. Over the year, when we started, there was just one fund. There was no allocation questions. You just put the money in the fund. There was you know, We didn't have that debate. Then we took some funds public, ECC and EIC. Now we have to manage within the 40 Act rules. Then some ERISA plans came to us and said, we'd like a separate account. So now we're managing ERISA money. You had a different set of rules. We also trade some stocks for a different strategy we run called our defensive income strategy, which is focused on being involved in lending money to BDCs and other private credit funds. But sometimes we actually buy the stocks where our credit works as the stock is undervalued. Okay, we've actually become insiders at some companies because we own so much of their stock as well. And all of those rules, these are all, I said to the lady who's our CCO, your title hasn't changed in a few years, but you weren't doing any of this a year ago. And I don't know what we'll be doing next year. And we want to give people, we want to have people who can figure things out on the fly, be studied on them, and be adapting to the market conditions. So while many people are on the org chart doing the same position, the actual tasks they do day to day change quite regularly with the business cycle. And I think that's great. And that helps people thrive. What does the competitive landscape for the CLO equity activity look like? There are a handful of bona fide competitors and a whole laundry list of transient competitors. We hold the top competitors in high regard, and I believe they would say the same of us. They're full-time folks who are dedicated, 
that have multiple professionals dedicated to this market. We all have different flavors. Many of them are based here in Greenwich, as luck would have it. <laughs> but we have a respect for each other. We know what they're going to do. They probably know the things we're going to do. And the nice thing is there's always another. So if we were running a real estate fund, let's say, and the Chrysler building came up for sale, that's a once in a career trade. You're going to bid and you're going to come up with every last dollar you can to be the highest bidder because you want to own the darn Chrysler building. On a CLO, there's always the next one. And we have to keep that in mind. Let's not, if we can sense that someone else bidding keenly, okay, that's fine. We'll let this one go. That's the nice thing in our world. There's always another. They're on good and bad. There's not a shortage of supply. Real estate, they're not making any more. CLOs, they're making more. But it helps us. It makes it easier to be much more disciplined, frankly. And when we see our competitors acting, we have public vehicles. Some of them have public vehicles. You can kind of see what's going on. Certainly any day one of our competitors publishes a queue. We've looked at it thoroughly, and I'm sure they do the same of ours. And it's always interesting to see the different trends. Some people like more banged up deals that have had a little more problem. We might focus on things that are a little cleaner. Optically, they might have a higher IRR potential, but maybe there's more uncertainty in that IRR. Different ways to slice it. But there's probably about five firms that form the core of the equity market who are, I think, the street would consider the most sophisticated. And then it kind of trickles down from there. Given the interesting kind of inefficiencies and resources required and limited number of competitors, I'd love to hear what you think is misunderstood for, say, an allocator looking at the space of why you aren't just swamped with even more competition. It's a very short list of folks who appreciate the business that can be created delivering value in this niche market. When we talk to prospective investors, the majority of large allocators in the world don't even want to talk about a specific CLO allocation let alone find folks who are willing to build a business focused originally exclusively, now predominantly for us on CLOs and CLO equity. So it's just a, by virtue of the headlines, the misunderstood aspects of these transactions, just as the majority of people are not likely to make a dedicated CLO allocation anytime soon, I would say a super majority of people would not be able to say, 96% of CLOs had a positive return to the equity class from before the financial crisis with a median of 15 IRR, outperforming private equity, outperforming the S&P 500 even. So as long as people don't know that data, we're going to be slim. And I say to everyone, sometimes the marketing department kicks me under the desk, in the next five years, we're going to have a down 10% plus month. I don't know when, I don't know why, I know it's going to happen. And if that's not something you're comfortable with, this is probably not the right investment for you. And now that we've got the behind us, let me tell you about the merits of what we do. We don't want to surprise anyone. We want people to know that right up front. And I think by the end of the meeting, usually they focus more on the positives, but I want to make sure everyone appreciates that right from the outset. So alongside the short-term mark-to-market, every couple of years, you hear about this risk of a wall of maturities. How do you see that risk in your markets? In my experience, the wall of maturities has never toppled over. It's often talked about, but it's never toppled over. The wall of bridge loans, however, that's interesting. And 
one of the things we show, and I believe you can see this in our public filings for ECC and EIC, we actually show the maturities of our loans by year. How many are due in 23, 24, 25, 26? And if you look at it every year, it's basically the same chart, just with the years moved over one. It just naturally happens. So there are about 2,000 large cap syndicated loans. Many of them are backed by private equity firms. You have to be in a very dire situation to let your long-term debt get into the current portion of your balance sheet. And every private equity firm has two or three associates and VPs focused on making sure that never happens. So firm one is working on this company, has got 400 million of debt. Firm two is working on this company, has got 800 million of debt, different maturities. Third, just making rational decisions around each one. If you're a private equity sponsor, so we'll take a step back, one, one firm just Paid, had a little bit of 2023 debt. They had maturities probably through 28, but they had a loan due in 23, maybe two or 300 million out of a billion in total indebtedness. L plus 225, they just refinanced it to SOFR plus 375. But again, it's 20% of their indebtedness, and now it's a 29 maturity, and it's tomorrow's problem. Private equity sponsors are looking to make three times their money when they buy a company. And while they're going to kick and scream about every eighth of a point on the darn loan, if they pick a good business that can grow EBITDA, if they make 2.9 times or 3.1 times, no one's going to complain. So while it's important to them, they're working in integer multiples and credit people are working in basis points. With all of this constant change of the opportunity set within CLO equity, you mentioned earlier some opportunities in the debt, yeah. in CLO debt, and would just love to hear where you're seeing some of those opportunities and why extend past CLO equity. Sure. So CLO debt is a very interesting animal. You get paid very well in normal markets. You have a floating rate asset, so you don't have any rate risk. You get a premium spread compared to CMBS or other ABS type products. So you're getting paid a premium, but you're writing a spread option in that CLOs have a 12-year legal final, but a two-year non-call. And the person who controls that call is me. So you don't know if you're going to get paid back in year 2.1 or 11.9 or anywhere in between. Now, when we issue a CLO last year in 2021, AAAs were 125. And I didn't know if spreads are going to go wider or tighter. If they went tighter, I would refinance those CLOs right now and lock in 100 or whatever the level is. It turns out they've gapped wider and it's 225 or 250 over. Well, we'll just keep the 125 financing outstanding, please, for as long as, as we need. So, so that optionality inures to us. You get paid well on a relative basis for writing that option as a CLO debt investor. In my opinion, you take very little credit risk buying CLO debt. Even at the double B level, the class just above the equity, the long-term default rate is less than 20 basis points per annum. So the actual instances of loss down there, just as equity nearly has all had a positive return, what do you know? Nearly all the debt tranches have been paid in full. So you're not taking a lot of credit risk, but you've got the spread uncertainty, the repayment timing uncertainty, and mark-to-market volatility. So right now, you can build a very interesting portfolio of CLO double Bs at 80 cents on the dollar. Those things, in theory, if the world turns, could pivot back to par very, very quickly. At the same time, the actual coupons on CLO debt are the highest they've been in the decade we've been here at Eagle Point. The things going on right now with floating rate, because they're all indexed off of LIBOR or SOFR, when we turned up here on January 1, LIBOR was 20 basis points. LIBOR is 4.5% now. One of our public funds, EIC, 
is principally CLO double B investing, 70 odd percent of the portfolio, give or take, maybe 65 of CLO double Bs. We've increased the distribution on that so many times. We just had another distribution increase yesterday, another 14%, such that the dividend to the common shareholders is more than doubled from where it was at the beginning of 2021, just due to rising rates. And people want to benefit from that. Investment grade bonds are down 15%. We've doubled our distribution in the same time frame, just with the benefit of floating rates coming our way. And then you have the potential for the convexity and that many of these securities are trading in the 70s and 80s at this point. They do have a funny habit of paying off at par. Obviously, there's risks and uncertainties in the future. Things could be different. But if history is any guide in the historic loss experience, it's a pretty interesting time to get involved. We've gone back and back-tested some of the... Uh, JP Morgan has an index for CLO double Bs. You can find it buried somewhere on Bloomberg. But we've run some data that shows anytime you invest in double Bs when loans are at this kind of price point, the one, two, and three-year returns are in the last decade have historically been very, very good. So it's something you can act more quickly than equity in that there's more supply. It's a more liquid instrument. You can get more money put to work quickly and the potential convexity could be significantly greater. Against that, the prices could fall farther and it cuts both ways, but it is a really attractive entry point for those. Structurally, what type of vehicle did you decide to pursue to so we offered a number of different ways. We have a public vehicle, which is a closed-end fund. So you can just buy and sell the shares freely on the New York Stock Exchange under ticker EIC. But it's a closed-end vehicle. It's not an ETF where we then have to go quickly sell the security same day. I'd be a little more cautious with that. It just takes a, a little extra effort. And the risk of harm to investors, in my opinion, could be greater. Not impossible to manage, but a higher bar at a minimum. So that's the principal way to do it, where the portfolio managers can focus on fundamental long-term value creation, and investors can choose their entry and exit point without harming other investors. So that's the ideal. We also manage it in separate account format for institutional investors. All right, Tom, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. Before we get on that, I'd love your perspective of what you think this business looks like five years from now. We're always looking where value is being captured. And- over our years, we started with CLO equity. We kind of looked at CLO debt. We took our part of our CLO fund public, which is ECC back in 2014. And then we started issuing preferred stock and junior debt off of that vehicle. And we started looking at that like, that's actually a very interesting investment unto itself. In the 82 years since the 40 Act has been passed, as best we're aware, there's only been two defaults ever by 40 Act companies, and both were 100% recovery huh, we actually set up a whole business around investing in those securities issued by other firms at this point, and that's now billions of dollars. And we keep looking around the corner for where's some other very interesting value. What I suspect we'll continue to have is new and additional ways in kind of niche markets where we're going to be able to deliver significant outperformance and bring investment opportunities to institutional investors that they might not have thought of before. And when we went out with the BDC debt strategy, people were like, oh, I think I invest in a couple of BDCs. I said, well, BDC debt outperformed BDC equity from 2014 to 2019. Even though there weren't a lot of credit problems then, just the yield opportunity was so great, it outperformed on an index basis the equity. Huh. And those are the kind of things where we're going to look for. Again, it's not a giant market. It's not trillions of dollars. It's measured in the tens of billions. But where we can generate, we think, outsized returns 
or extremely attractive risk-adjusted returns. And we've kind of got our eye on the next few things around the corner, and I suspect we'll keep expanding prudently. We've hired a few people that really aren't managing money yet, but we know what we want them to do in other little niche high-income areas. And that's what clients look to us for. We eat our own cooking, very much a team culture. No one here has points in their funds. We all rise and fall together. It's not your fund's doing great, you have a great year, your fund isn't. We're in it together as a team, and that helps with the collaboration, and that helps with the creation of new ideas. So roll the clock forward five years. We're doing exactly what we're doing, whatever the market demands us to do, and then we'll be doing a few other things that look kind of similar to what we're doing, but are new and interesting. Well, Tom, I want to ask you a couple of fun closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Right now is probably skiing. It's something I took up yoga about seven or eight years ago. I was first a little nervous. Not a lot of you know forty-something-year-old guys do that. And what a difference it's made in my flexibility, my ease. It's helped my golf game as well, but it's helped my skiing just tremendously. And it's the, one of the few things in life I can do where if you're thinking about anything else other than the mountain in front of you, you probably have a problem, and that's it, a good way to take your mind off of things. And then when you're on the lift, you chat with your colleagues, your friends, either work or social. It's a really nice mix. It's something I look forward to every single winter, and I'm getting emails right now about snow falling out west, and I'm licking my chops. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? I'm the only person in the world with this <laughs> pet peeve. In a typical fund management role and CLO collateral managers are RIAs. They're, you know, fiduciaries and all this, the same things that we are and private equity firms are. There's owing back to the days when there were very few majority or no majority investors, CLO collateral manager contracts are basically ironclad. Absent capital C cause, gross negligence, you can't remove a collateral manager. You can always sell your security. By and large, the vast majority of CLOs have these ironclad contracts, which in a private equity fund or a hedge fund would not be tolerated. Unfortunately, in our market, it is, and it goes back to the convention set up 20 years ago. And I understand why they don't want to change them on the other side of the table, but (laughs) I'm still allowed to be upset about it. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I'll say one directly and maybe one a little more indirectly. A fellow named Mike, who was my boss at J.P. Morgan way back when, I was 25 and he was probably 50. And this is when I was hired to undo those broken CLOs. He was the senior executive put in charge and they needed someone to do all the nuts and bolts work and that was me. But when you think about a typical hierarchy at a bank, the boss is two or three years older than you, he or she probably got their guard up, making sure you're not going for their job and all these other bad things that might've happened over the years. This was someone that was able to take me under his wing as a mentor. No way in the world, you know, he had six times more experience than me. There there wasn't a question that I could be a threat to him. And as a result, he gave me all the time and knowledge and mentoring I could possibly have hoped for. And then I'll actually point to Chuck Davis over at Stone Point incredibly nice and kind individual, obviously extraordinarily successful. But I will often say of Stone Point, they're an HR firm with a little investment business on the side, obviously more than a little investment business on the side. But what I've learned from them is you get the people part of things right and you have a halfway decent business idea. No success is guaranteed, 
but you really have to stuff it up from there. And I watch how they run their organization and they're very good at fostering collaboration amongst the portfolio companies. We, they have other businesses in our space. And once we take that awkwardness off the table, we share and collaborate. And I watch how that's fostered across different businesses. And I've tried to replicate that here within our organization. So one was a nuts and bolts strategy tackling person. One was really how to run a business. And I've been blessed to have been around those people and, and, and many other folks. But those two people stand out. When I look at the things I do every day, it's filtered, it's formed by the experiences I had with those two individuals. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? That one's an easy one. CLO equity. <laughs> There's not enough good CLOs in the world. We wish there were more. We wish AAAs would be tighter, but we're always looking for something interesting to do in that market where our funds are sponsoring new CLO collateral managers now, where our fund takes ownership interests. We're finding lots of different ways in that ecosystem to capture value for our investors. But it all goes back to that same raw root material. What are your biggest blind spots? The thing we don't know well enough, and I don't think many investors do, is geopolitical risk. There's, there's known knowns. There's going to be some country in the news that causes distress in the world that we're not talking about right now in the next year, next two years. Something we don't like in any investment we make is where there's a single point of failure and there's 190 odd countries in the world. I'm sure every one of them's got something on the drawing board. And how those will affect the markets, we don't know. Our defense to that is our CLOs have long reinvestment periods. And if things go haywire, loans fall, and we can keep reinvesting. But if I look back at the things, it's geopolitical things that happen. And no one's smart enough to accurately predict those perfectly every time going forward. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Ah, life's a long game. It's not about what you can do today. It's when you ask the question, what do you want to be in five years? I think of my career, five-year intervals. I think of my family life and five-year intervals. I lost my mom earlier this year, which was a toughie, but it was very much long-term. Where are you going to be five, 10 years from now? She was a teacher. But looking to the future and modeling everything you do today to be to that goal you want to be at in a handful of years. And that's one of the most valuable lessons I've really ever learned. Tom, one more for you. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? So a change I have made personally, I have spent a lot of time and effort increasing my emotional intelligence. I'm a very intellectually curious person. And I've known that, but I might not have even been able to articulate that five years ago and certainly not 10 years ago. And I try to surround myself both professionally and personally with people who share that curiosity. You can always learn something new. It could be politics, it could be religion, it could be the bond market, it could be well, lots of other things. I don't wanna be around people who think the same thing as me. I just wanna be around people who have the same curiosity as me, who wanna keep learning and when someone says, I just learned something new, and it might be seemingly arcane trivia, but somehow that shapes something else you learn. And I know I've got that. I've improved my own emotional intelligence, and I can identify this. And when we look to bring people in here, and when I look at my friends in my life, I've probably self-selected to it without realizing it for a fair bit, but maybe I'm doing it intentionally now, and I think I'm better off for it. 
Tom, thanks so much for sharing this true masterclass on CLO equities. Great. Thank you very much for having us, Ted. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at to apply for one of the slots. Mm-hmm.